Corinthians. And it's been, this is our ninth week that we've spent in this letter of five chapters. And I've enjoyed it. I don't know about you, but looking at this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica and exploring these themes that he has of encouragement for the church and what he's heard about their faith going out from that church, that their faith is not something that's just remained within the congregation. It's not something that has just remained stagnant either, but something that is growing and that is reaching out into the areas around Thessalonica to further the kingdom of God, to further that hope of who Jesus is. And so I don't know about you, but I've been encouraged as we've read Paul's letter to see how we too, as believers in this day and age, can see our faith spread beyond these four walls, beyond just Springfield Church of God into the greater community and into the greater area that the Lord has placed us in. But Paul is not done. There's one chapter left that we're going to spend this week and next week in as we wrap up this book. Before we do that, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for your word that you have given to us, that you have sustained through the years so that we may have it today, so we may examine it today and learn from it how we can live pursuing you and what it looks like to live out our faith each and every day. And so, Lord, as we spend time in it today, may you give us open ears and soft hearts to hear what it is that you wish to say to us today. And Lord, may it all honor and glorify your name pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Well, I was thinking this week about being prepared and what it means to be prepared. And it made me think about a time that I was really ill-prepared. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in one of those situations where you thought you were prepared, but really you weren't. And for me, that was a couple summers ago. My family went camping up on the Washington Peninsula And I remember I had packed my bag and we were going to be up there right across from the water. And I thought, I have everything I need. And I got up there and it was so cold. I had brought like one sweatshirt and one coat and I had a bad sleeping bag and a big thick air mattress that allowed a lot of air underneath it. And I froze that entire week. I felt miserable throughout the entire time. And I thought each and every night, I wish I had more clothes to put on. I wish I had brought more stuff with me. I wish that I was better prepared. I remember coming home and telling Tim Morris that, and Tim said, well, you need some good fleece to keep you warm, because that's what I take when I go hunting. And I just thought I was not prepared. I was ill-prepared for how cold it was, and people had told me it would be warmer than it actually was. In fact, we've been back there since, and I was talking with my family about how this place is always cold. And they said, well, it's not that cold usually. We just keep ending up with these weeks that are cold. And I looked over at a tree next to us, and all of it was pushed this direction from the wind. And I thought, it is always windy and cold here. (laughs) So now I know if I head back to be better prepared. But made me think, what does it actually look like to be well prepared for camping? What does that mean? Does that mean having enough clothes, having the proper sleeping bags so that if you're in a cold environment that you'll be warm? What does it mean to be prepared for life? How do we best prepare for the lives that we're living? Does it mean to get proper exercise and nutrition so that we can be healthy? Does it mean to uh, make sure that we can get a job that pays for what our needs are so that we can live out our days financially responsible? What does it mean to be well prepared for life? But more importantly than these things, what does it mean for us to be well prepared for eternity? You see, this life is only just a small part of eternity. And that's hard for us to fathom because we think of our life as really being all that we know and all that there is, except this uh, notion beyond it of eternity. 
And yet eternity is far greater than the time that we have here on earth. And so it's important to think about what that means to be well prepared for eternity. And in our text today, the Apostle Paul gives us some insight into how Christians should prepare for eternity. How we can prepare for Jesus to return. So if you would look with me today at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses today. And you can follow along on the screen. You can grab a pew Bible if you like holding a physical Bible. Or perhaps you brought your own. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is where we're going to be today. And this is what Paul says starting in verse 1. He says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So what Paul's doing here is he's transitioning out of chapter 4, which is where we've been the last few weeks, where he's been talking about those who are dead and the concern as to if someone died before Christ's return, would they go to heaven with Christ? Would he gather them together? And we talked about that last week, that, that Jesus will gather those who they say are asleep, which is their kind way of saying that they're dead, and he'll gather them with him as well. And so Paul's now moving from speaking about those who have died to relating to those who are alive. And what does it mean is those who are still living to anticipate when Christ will return. And that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about the times and the seasons. He's speaking of those moments when Christ will return, when he will come in his glory. And so Paul wants them to know once again, that they need to be prepared for this. And it's not that Paul has not talked about this. In fact, in those three weeks Paul spent with the Thessalonians, we know that he talked about this, that he talked about eternity and about preparing for Christ's return. Because Paul says right here, you have no need to hear anything written to you. And he references other places that he's already spoken about these things to the Thessalonians. Paul's already taught them what to expect in the end times and to anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. These concepts wouldn't have been new to the Thessalonians, but Paul wants to remind them again. It makes me think about as a parent how perhaps you've taught your child something, but you have to sometimes tell them again and again and again and again. And it's not that they're always not doing what you've asked them to do, but sometimes you just need to reiterate those things. And so Paul's reiterating here to the Thessalonians the importance of Christ's return. He wants them to keep it at the forefront of their mind, to continue to be aware that this has eternal value and that he wants them to be living their lives in light of Christ coming again. And he knows that they should be living fully aware that Christ is coming. He uses this word, the day of the Lord, which is a familiar Old Testament idea and concept that the day of the Lord would be when Christ will return, when everything will be set right. Not only will it be when Christ returns, but it'll be in God's timing. And no one knows the hour or the time when this will occur. You can anticipate, you can guess. I was reading this week about many people who have guessed and said, I know for certain that Jesus will return at this time on this date. And that was back in like 1988. So we're a little past that. And it's happened many other times as well. But no one truly knows when Jesus will return. But when he does come, when that day of the Lord occurs, in an ultimate sense, that's the day when Jesus will usher in things how they are meant to be. And with that, as he returns to earth and returns in his glory, there will also be judgment that comes. And so Paul wants them to know that they need to be prepared. He wants them to know to continue to live walking in the faith that they have been called to. 
And he wants them to know that when this occurs, it's going to happen like a thief. This points to not knowing the time that it will occur. And Jesus spoke to this in Matthew 24, 36, when he said, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. And so it's because of this that Paul wants them to be fully aware. Because they don't know when it will occur. They can't bank on the fact that it'll be on this certain day and wait for that time to get ready, to make their preparations, to get spiritually healthy so that they're ready when Jesus returns. Because like a thief that comes in the night that you're not prepared for, that you don't know when it's going to happen, that's when Jesus will come again. And this word thief is used throughout the New Testament. It's used here in the context of a warning or an exhortation for the Thessalonians. You see, a thief, when it comes, causes injury to the household. Therefore, those who are unprepared for the Lord's return will suffer a loss and destruction. Now, what this requires of the Thessalonians is that they would wait patiently while maintaining a sense of both awareness, though, and preparedness as they await Jesus' return. You see, it's not just a passive waiting. It's not just acknowledging in the back of our mind that, yes, someday Jesus will come again. But Paul wants them to be aware and prepared as they wait. But at the same time, to be patient. Not always an easy mix. And while Paul's already taught them about these things, he's going to give them some additional instructions, as Paul often does here in verse 3. So look with me as Paul continues in verse 3. Paul says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. See, Paul knows that the tendency of people is to think that everything is fine until it isn't. We all do this at different seasons of our lives. We think we're healthy until we're not. We think that our finances are in great shape until they're not. We think that our life is going great until all of a sudden it's not. And so there is a tendency to think that you are fine spiritually until that day when Christ returns and you didn't prepare. You didn't take the time to really explore what it means to put your faith in Jesus and to learn what the truth is that he brings. And so Paul wants them to not do that. He wants them to not just think that they'll be fine and that they can deal with that someday, that everything in their life is great and that there is peace and security in the moment. Paul wants them to know that that's a false sense of security. He wants to warn those who are not following Christ, who have not submitted their lives to Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they are in danger of being caught unaware. And the same is true today. This hasn't changed in the thousands of years since Paul wrote this. If we have not accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are living in that place that is unsafe and not prepared for Jesus' return. And if he returns, or if our lives are to end, we are in danger then of an eternity being separated from Jesus Christ. And Paul uh, shows, illustrates what this looks like to the Thessalonians by relating the sudden destruction that's coming to the unbelievers with that of a pregnant woman experiencing labor pains. Labor pains that can be agonizing and sudden. And you see throughout Scripture that this imagery is also used other places for eschatological metaphors, both by Jesus and Paul. You see, Paul wants to make it clear that not only will this occur suddenly, but that no one will be able to flee the sudden judgment that Christ will bring. 
He says at the end there of verse 3 that they will not escape. You see, sometimes it's easy for people to think, well, I'll get a second chance someday. I'll have time someday to deal with that. Someday I'll do X, Y, and Z. And Paul's letting them know they won't escape. That there isn't another time to make these decisions, but these decisions are to be made today. That living for Christ is a decision to be made today. Not tomorrow, not someday down the road I'll start living for Christ, I'll start following his word. But Paul wants them to know that true peace and security is found in Christ alone and that there is destruction coming. And so it's a warning that he's offering both for those who are believing to continue to walk in that faith and belief and for those who perhaps are hearing this letter who have not placed their faith in Jesus, that they would do so. Well, while Christ returns and the judgment of the day of the Lord means destruction for those who haven't placed their faith in Jesus, what does it mean for his followers? Take a look with me at chapter 5, verse 4, to see how Paul explores further with the Thessalonians. In verse 4, Paul says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. You see, while Paul has spoken to those who are not following Jesus, he wants to encourage the Thessalonians who are, those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who have chosen to walk in his footsteps, who are not in the darkness. And because of this, Paul says that in verse 4, that the darkness, that the thief won't surprise them. He says, for that day to surprise you like a thief, that that won't happen because they're not in darkness. You see, the Thessalonians who have chosen to follow Jesus, who have accepted that he is the Messiah and that he died on the cross for them, that he rose again so that they too could rise one day, that when they believe in that, that they are walking in the light, that they are no longer in darkness. And it's here in verse 5 where there's a shift that occurs. We see Paul move from talking about you, speaking to the Thessalonians, to talking about us, including himself and Timothy and Silas with the Thessalonians, that they are in this together, that they are alongside the Thessalonian believers and unifying themselves with them as he speaks about these things, as he talks about them being children of the light. You see, the light is Christ. When Paul talks about walking in the light, talks about what the light is to them, that light is Christ. And if the Thessalonian, Thessalonian believers are children of Christ, then they come under the Father's authority and they experience that light. And Paul contrasts this by letting them know that they are not of the night or the darkness. So he's drawing this line for us between the light and followers of Jesus who are walking in the light and darkness, those who don't know Jesus, those who are not walking in the truth of the word of God. Paul wants to separate those and show that there is a difference. The light is Christ's way. It's the Christian way. And the darkness is rejecting Christ and rejecting Christianity. People come up with lots of reasons to do that. But most of them have to do with a selfishness or a pride that prevents them from submitting themselves to Jesus as Lord and Savior to giving your life to someone else to rule and have authority over you and to want to have that authority yourself, to lead your life how you want to lead it, to do what you want to do rather than adhering to a set of guidelines that the Lord has given us in his word. 
And yet, while they think they're living their best life, they're truly walking in darkness, not seeing what truth is and not experiencing the light of Christ. In verse 6 and 7, we see Paul introduce two additional metaphors related to how we prepare or don't prepare for Christ's return. He says in verse 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. See, Paul knows that sleep, that aspect of sleep, that you're not prepared when you're asleep. That there is an ignorance that people are living with where they are as if they are asleep. They're living with a passive, callous disregard for the need to be prepared. It makes me think of the parable of the ten virgins who are waiting for the feast and they run out of oil in their lamps and they leave to go get more oil in their lamps and when they're gone, they miss him. They miss the bridal procession that comes in and they come back and they say, let us in and it's too late. They weren't prepared. They had not prepared well to be there at that moment when the bride came. And the solution that Paul gives us here for those who he's instructing to not be asleep is to keep awake. You see, this idea of being awake is the idea of having an awareness to what's happening. You're able to react to your surroundings. You're not easily caught off guard or ill-prepared. Paul includes in this solution as well this idea of being sober, which leads to the same favorable attributes as not being asleep. The encouragement that Paul gives here is to keep awake and to be sober. And Paul's encouraging the Thessalonians through these manners that they would be watchful and ready for Christ to return. He wants them to not be caught off guard. He wants them to not have their guard down, but to be ready for that moment when Christ returns. Continuing in verse 8, Paul says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. See, Paul categorizes both himself and the Thessalonians as those who belong to the day and not to the night. And he once again is doing that day-night comparison, that dark light comparison, serving to illustrate those who know Jesus and follow him with those who don't. And because they're in the day, Paul calls them to be sober. That is, they live their lives that they would be in control of what they do. That they, would be an, that they would have an awareness to their lives. It's hard to have an awareness to be in control and to be ready, preparing for Christ's return, if you are drunk or if you've given yourself over to too much alcohol. And Paul knows that that is an aspect that he's instructing them in as they prepare for Christ's return. But he doesn't just leave the Thessalonians with this list of things to do, or things not to do, excuse me. But he moves forward with giving them ways to put this into practice. Ways in which they can practice walking in the light as he adapts the image of God's heavenly armor from Isaiah chapter 59. Paul tells them that God has not, or he tells them, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Paul wants them to put on faith and hope and love, that these things would be attributes that they embody as they wait for Christ's return. This word word faith in the Greek is pistis, which means a persuasion, to be persuaded or come to trust faith. 
Bible Hub describes faith as always a gift from God, never something that can be produced by people. In short, faith for the believer is God's divine persuasion and therefore distinct from human belief or confidence, yet involving it. The Lord continuously births faith in the yielded believer so they can know what he prefers, what the Lord prefers. And we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, that Paul writes there, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. You see, Paul knows the importance of this faith that the Lord gives us, this faith knowing that God will be true to his word, knowing that God gives us that belief in him, and that God, therefore, we can have confidence in him knowing that he is true. And Paul tells us also to put on love. That love there that Paul, the word he uses there, it's the agape love. It's the idea of God's unconditional love for us. And that as we follow Christ, as we put on that love and receive that love from God, that we would also be exhibiting that love towards others. That sacrificial love that that would be a part of how we walk in the light as believers is by living sacrificially for one another, living out that sense of agape love towards those within the church and even those outside of the church. And lastly, Paul tells them that they'll have the helmet, the hope of salvation. Hope is that idea of an expectation of what is sure and certain. You see, we can have a hope knowing that when Paul writes That if we walk in the light, we will know Christ and we will then be raised with Christ when he returns. That we won't experience the wrath and destruction that awaits those who don't follow Christ. We can have hope knowing that God is true to his word. Paul's idea here is that faith, love, and hope are like an armor to protect us. To protect believers. Not only to protect us, but also to help us prepare for spiritual battle. For the things that we will face on our journey of faith. When verses 9 and 10, Paul wants the Thessalonians to know that he calls them to live with faith, hope, and love as those who live in the light, not destined for wrath. What an encouragement to those who have placed their faith in Jesus, knowing that the blood of Christ has covered over all of our sins. That all that we've done wrong, the ways in which we have fallen short of the glory of God, that because of Christ's death and resurrection, we place our faith in him that he saves us from the, the death that we deserve, which is that wrath that is coming. Paul gives the assurance, since he's talked about the judgment of the day of the Lord, that he wants the Thessalonians to know that as they continue to follow Christ, that this will lead to an eternal joy through the salvation received through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul reminds his readers here in verse 10 that Jesus has died for us. Not because we were already saved or whether we're awake or asleep, but Jesus died for us so that we could become awake, so that we could experience light and life in Christ. He died in order that we might live with him. And Paul wants the Thessalonians to be encouraged in this, to know this fact That's why he closes out with that part in verse 10 where he says, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. You see, that is the promise that we have in Christ. That when we place our faith in him, that we will get to live with him. And not just walk with him and his spirit in us while we're here on earth, but for eternity that we will get to live with Christ. 
Paul wants to close out this section by giving one last exhortation in verse 11. Look at what Paul says. He says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. In light of all that Paul has said about living in the day versus the night, about putting on faith and love and hope, about obtaining salvation in Jesus Christ, in light of all of this, Paul wants them to encourage one another and to seek to build one another up. This is the calling of believers. This is the calling of the church that as we live together, as we live out our faith with one another, that we would be doing this, that we would be encouraging each other, that we would be building one another up. There should be no greater place of encouragement than a church filled with the body of believers pursuing after Christ together. And Paul wants that to happen in Thessalonica here with the believers that he is writing to. He wants them to encourage each other, to come alongside one another, spurring one another on in their faith. When they have doubts or trials, that they would be encouraged by those around them to remain steadfast, to continue to look to the Lord, to continue to pursue after the Lord, and that they would build each other up rather than tearing each other down that their pursuit together would be Christ. And when they fix their eyes on Christ together, that makes it a lot easier to build each other up, to be encouraging one another, to be rooting for one another, because you're all focused upon Christ. And it's not that they weren't doing this. It's not that they haven't been uh, living this out with their faith. Paul once again says, just as you are doing. So he's encouraging them, exhorting them, and in things that they're already doing, just reiterating the good works that they are accomplishing that he's heard about them. The truths that Paul has written about today to the Thessalonians are a great encouragement for those who wish to be prepared and to experience the fullest life that's available. So let's look at how we can apply this passage, how we too can be encouraged by this passage to live it out faithfully in our lives. You see, the the large premise of this text is preparing for Christ's return. In our text today, Paul encourages Christians to be simultaneously ever waiting and ever ready. That we should be prepared for Christ to appear on the clouds of heaven tomorrow. And yet we should also be willing to wait for his return to be years, decades, or even centuries away. That that would be the state in which we are living in. So what does it look like to be prepared? As followers of Christ, as a church, how are we prepared? Well, the first thing may seem obvious, but would be that to prepare for Christ's return, first and foremost, we must submit our lives to Christ. That if you haven't done that yet, if you haven't uh, surrendered your life to Christ and gone to him, that you would do that first and foremost. That you would repent of your sins. That you would ask forgiveness from Jesus Christ and that you would place your faith and trust in him. That's the first step to prepare for Christ's coming, is to surrender your life to him. Because if you don't do that, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how much you seek to prepare for the future life that you have or even for an eternity. If it's not through faith placed in Christ, then it's moot. It doesn't matter. It won't gain you anything. You could have all the wealth in the world. You could live the greatest, kindest life here on earth. And I can think of examples of people who live their lives so kind, so generous, and yet they never place their faith in Christ. And so they will spend eternity separated from him because the punishment for our sins is death. And we are all sinners. We all fall short of God's glory. 
So the first step to prepare for an eternity is to submit your life to Christ. The second is to seek to walk in the light. Light is so important in our journey, and light is so important in our lives. That's why Paul uses this metaphor. Each and every morning during the week, I wake up pretty early. Usually I try to get up about 5 o'clock, and I head downstairs, and I always try not to turn on any lights, really. I try to keep mostly in the dark. Sometimes I'll turn on the bathroom light, but I don't turn on the kitchen light because I don't want my dog to wake up because then he'll start whining and he'll want me to let him outside. And that creates a lot more noise in the house and I'm trying not to wake anybody up. And so I try to walk around in the dark. And for the most part, I do pretty well. But a couple months back, I was walking through my kitchen and I had forgotten that I had left out some crates from the night before and I just stubbed my toe right into one of those crates. You see, without light... We miss the obstacles in our way. We miss the things that are in our path and things that can become dangerous to us. And the same is true for our lives, that if we don't have Christ to guide us and to lead us, to help us get out of the way of those things that are a danger to us, then we'll miss them. We'll walk in the darkness, banging into things, walking in our sin, and missing out on the light that is Christ. The practical aspect of walking in the light is that it illuminates where we are going. If I would have turned on the lights in my kitchen, I would have seen the crate, and I would have been able to walk around it. Spiritually, as we walk in darkness, we will miss things in our lives. We will miss opportunities that the Lord would have for us. We will miss ways in which we could avoid sin that is before us, and that we could experience the joy of the Lord. And so God calls us to walk in light. So how do you do that? What does that look like practically? Well, because God is light, if we want to walk in light, we must immerse ourselves in who God is. We must spend time with him in prayer and in his word. We must develop a hunger and a thirst for God, and that will enable us to live lives that are in the light. The second aspect of walking in light is to avoid sin. Sin is darkness. So the more that we walk in our sin and give ourselves over to our sin time and time again, rather than seeking the Lord and freedom from those sins, the more that we will walk in darkness. So we must start by confessing and repenting and then live in the grace that the Lord offers us when we do that. And then to continue in fellowship with the church, to surround ourselves with other believers who can encourage us, who can provide accountability with one another, who can exhort us as we live out our faith together. That communal aspect is so important in our faith journey. So to prepare for the, the Christ coming again, we must submit to Christ and we must walk in light. And lastly, we must encourage one another. Paul says that time and time again, the importance of encouraging one another in the faith. On May 24th, 1965, a 13 and a half foot boat slipped quietly out of the marina in Massachusetts. It would be the smallest craft ever to make the voyage across the Atlantic Ocean to England. The Tinkerbell was piloted by Robert Mannery, a copy editor for the Cleveland Plain Dealer who felt that 10 years at his desk was enough boredom for a while. So he took a leave of absence to fulfill his secret dream. Manry was afraid, not of the ocean, but of all who would try to talk him out of the trip. So he didn't share it with many, just some relatives and especially his wife, Virginia. The trip was not so pleasant. He spent nights of sleeplessness trying to cross shipping lanes without getting run over and sunk. Weeks at sea caused his food to become tasteless. Loneliness 
That age-old monster of the deep led to terrifying hallucinations. His rudder broke three times, storms swept him overboard, and had it not been for the rope he had tied around his waist, he never would have been able to pull himself back on board. Finally, after 78 days alone at sea, he sailed into Cornwall, England. During those nights, he had wondered about what he would do once he arrived. He expected to simply check into a hotel, eat dinner alone, and the next morning see if perhaps the Associated Press might be interested in his story. Was he in for a surprise? Word of his approach had spread far and wide, and to his amazement, 300 vessels with horns blasting escorted Tinkerbell into port. About 40,000 people stood screaming and cheering him to shore. Robert Manry, the copy editor turned dreamer, became an overnight hero. His story had been told around the world, but Robert said that he couldn't have done it alone. Standing on the dock was an even greater hero, his wife Virginia. She had encouraged him when others would have discouraged him, and her encouragement is what made all the difference. You see, encouragement can make the difference in a life. Encouragement can cause us to do things that perhaps we wouldn't try to do or wouldn't feel like we were up for doing, and Paul knows this. He knows the power of encouragement, so he wants believers to be those who are encouraging one another in our faith journeys. He wants the church to be known as a place of encouragement, that out of the church we would see people encouraged to live for the Lord the fullest lives that we can live. So what can we encourage each other in? Well, first and foremost, we can encourage those who we know who have not professed faith in Christ that they would make that decision. If we have family members or loved ones or neighbors or coworkers who don't know the Lord, that we would encourage them to make that decision for Christ. That's how we can start to be an encouragement. And the second way is that we can encourage one another to be prepared for Christ's return, either for Christ's return or for our death, whichever comes first, but that either way we would be prepared. For we don't know what tomorrow holds, and so we should not put off for tomorrow what we can do today. And lastly, that we would encourage one another in living out our Christianity with faith, hope, and love, as Paul puts here in the text today. You see, there is still work to be done. There is still faith to be practiced. There are still days left at this point to continue serving the Lord. And as long as we are given time on this earth, we should never stop seeking to serve the Lord, seeking to grow in our faith, and seeking to encourage one another as Paul has done to the Thessalonians. I was reading this week about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was imprisoned during World War II for taking a stand against Hitler. Yet he continued to urge fellow believers to resist the Nazis. And a group of Christians who believed that Hitler was the Antichrist once asked Bonhoeffer, why do you expose yourself to all this danger? Jesus will return any day and all your work and suffering will be for nothing. Well, Bonhoeffer replied to them, If Jesus returns tomorrow, then tomorrow I'll rest from my labor. But today I have work to do. I must continue the struggle until it's finished. So may we continue to work at the tasks that the Lord has placed before us. May we continue to choose to walk in the light as the Lord has called us. And may we do this until it's finished, until Jesus' return ushers in the day of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your guiding truths that we find in Scripture. What a blessing it is that we can live our lives following the words that you have given us and know that in doing so, we're following you. 
So Lord, we thank you for Paul, for the other apostles and the other believers who started the early churches, who put this into practice and led by example so that as we follow, we can see their faith lived out. And Lord, may we too live our faith out in such a way that it leads to living an, leaving an example for those who follow. Lord, may you empower us in this journey that we are on. May you give us a steadfastness and a courage where it is needed. And Lord, may we encourage one another to fix our eyes upon you in all that we do. For your glory and honor and praise alone, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.